everyone. Welcome back to the Chain Reaction Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Shaughnessy, a co-founder at Delphi Digital, where we're five full-time analysts focused on institutional crypto research. If you aren't a subscriber, you're missing out, so visit the site while you're listening. One quick housekeeping item, this podcast is strictly informational and educational and is not investment advice or solicitation to buy or sell any tokens or securities or to make any financial decisions. I may personally own tokens that are mentioned on the podcast, and you can view the show notes for our full disclosures. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Chain Reaction Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Shaughnessy. Today, I have Alex Lindgren, who's grown to become a friend and who's a lawyer and has some extremely interesting things to discuss today. I'm going to keep this more conversational and and see where it takes us. Alex, how's it going? Going well, too. How are you doing today? Good. It's going great here. So yeah, so I like you said, I'm, a, I'm an attorney. I, I work extensively in the crypto space. I have for about three years now, and I work with a mix of both uh, the investor side, so hedge funds and some VC types in the space, as well as startups and, and entrepreneurs developing new products or, or new services, both you know from new token issuers to to people trying to build services or, or service providers for other blockchain companies and everything in between. I particularly work a lot on the regulatory side, so advising companies as to the securities laws and the money transmission and anti-money laundering rules uh, as they may apply to their companies. That's huge. And how long have you been at your current firm? Is this, I'm assuming this is the first, not, definitely not your first role, but I'm wondering how long you've been there. So I've been, uh, we started this, oh, about four and a half years ago, and it's been going pretty well. We started as a small practice. It was just actually myself and a senior partner who I had dragged back into private practice. We added a couple of attorneys on the East Coast uh, a couple of years ago, as well as enough counsel relationship with um, some really excellent attorneys up in San Francisco, uh, really with the goal of trying to provide sort of full-service law firm to smaller clients who maybe can't afford the ticket price of uh, the very largest firms. So we have all sorts of expertise, tax, regulatory, you know, corporate, intellectual property, and litigation. Please keep me away from the litigation if you can, but I tend to provide the, the regulatory advice as well as general venture capital and private market perspective. Yeah, of course. I'm assuming when you were at law school, you didn't think you'd be doing much in the cryptocurrency space, right? I mean, it was probably no. Young I I came out of the so I came to law school a little unusually. I was originally an entrepreneur myself. I came out of school with a, having studied chemistry and and worked in alternative energy. I ended up starting a couple of com- or co-founding a couple of companies in the alternative energy space, really working on sort of renewable fuel type stuff back in. I don't know, the early 2000s, I guess, somewhere around there, and really found that I was frustrated with my attorneys. I spent a lot of money on them and didn't feel like they understood my business or our needs and and hadn't really serviced that well in some cases. You know, in, in sort of a youthful entrepreneurial impetuousness, concluded that I, I must there must be a better way to do it. And clearly, the, the answer is to go to law school and figure it out myself. So I came to law from the perspective of, uh, of a legal consumer, originally, of an entrepreneur, and and that's definitely colored my practice ever since. But, that's awesome. Literally, l- lawyers are too expensive. Let me go to law school, which definitely sounds more expensive, but well, <laughs> saves money. Well, to figure out why, right, at the end of the day. And I think, I, you know, and this is something I, I recognize in a lot of my clients. At the end of the day, most entrepreneurs are driven, I think, by a desire to solve problems that they themselves have encountered, right? And 
at some level, that's sort of what where how I came to, to legal practice and why I try to focus my practice on early stage companies and funds because I think those that's really where I can add the most value and where I personally struggled once as a young entrepreneur myself. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. So I guess turning to the cryptocurrency space here, what are your day-to-day activities like with clients in the space? Like, are you working more with these companies and projects? Are you working more with the people involved? I'm just wondering, because there's obviously a lot of talk around regulation in the US, regulation for the companies. We'll get into the AML and, and the securities law stuff, but just wondering what, like, where your day-to-day is in the space. Sure. You know, partially because of the nature of the space, it's still a very small market, right? And the problems tend to run across the board. So I have a pretty mixed day, as it were. I tend to do a fair amount of deal review on behalf of investors, right? So I I look a lot of deals, try to understand what they're doing, both from a sort of practical, technical perspective, as well as a legal one. And, you know, advise my clients as to whether or not I think they're going to get into trouble if they invest in this thing. In with regards to the projects themselves, this is where I, I think I have the most fun personally. Sometimes these projects come and they're uh, fully packaged and they know exactly what they want to do. And, and it's really just sort of a matter of selecting the right rules and, and filings and so forth. Oftentimes that's not the case. Um, I find that, and this is increasingly true, I think recently, a lot of these projects, the new token projects are new, you know, blockchain developments or, or distributed applications, whatever, you know, DeFi products, whatever it may be. The, the entrepreneurs have, you know, these ideas of where they want to go, generally speaking. Uh, but they're often pretty flexible on the details with the product, right? And, and so where I get to have a lot of fun frequently is diving into the sort of business line and product design options with the clients, thinking about how we can roll them out, what are the best ones to start with from you know, a regulatory or a cost point of view, which are going to be perhaps more complicated or, or maybe need to be rejigged to make them work, uh, and really get involved with the business planning and the product design side of things, which is really quite fun. And I, I like to think uh, adds a lot of value because it avoids problems down the road when they get really expensive, frankly. Yeah, of course. That's interesting. And when you're reviewing these for your clients, how many times do you review something you say, you know, hey, this is never going to fly? Or is generally it kind of working through the details to make sure everything's legal and everything's clear? Or do you come I'll, across uh, a lot of projects and like, oh, yeah, So the, I've got two answers to that, right? So I think the answer is, broadly speaking, almost never in the most general sense, right? It's very rare that someone comes to me at least these days, you know, this is probably not true at the end of 2017. But um, nowadays, it's pretty rare that someone comes to me with an idea that is just abjectly illegal and will never work, right? Or where they want to engage in actively criminal enterprise. What happens frequently is that I get presented with a, a sort of specific implementation or design of it, Right, which is maybe very, very elegant from a technical perspective, and, and often was worked up in cooperation with their development team. Not, but is is while not impossible, just heinously complicated or or unnecessarily expensive to implement. Right. So, and that's where a lot of the times I, I end up having to come back and say, look, I can do this. It will cost like a million dollars. It's going to be absurdly expensive to do. What if we divide these two pieces of it up, right? And we do this this way and we separate this part out and do it do it another way. It would be a lot cheaper and a lot faster to roll out. And that's where we sort of get into the question of what aspects of it do they really care about? And usually there's a mix of 
they just don't know the law, right? So they, when they designed it, they weren't thinking about that. And usually I don't get a whole lot of pushback on those. Sometimes there is, and this is, I, th- I think, particularly with regards to the U.S. rules, and like you said, we'll get into it, there's a little bit of a residual frustration I encounter sometimes in that the there are a number of ideas like the sort of original utility token concept, for example, that really took hold, I think, in the, in the crypto community and maybe while still have inherent value. But from a U.S. securities or other regulatory point of view, it's really problematic. And I do occasionally run into scenarios where I feel like I'm a little bit of the messenger getting a pie thrown at them because I have to tell them that, you know, you don't have to obey these rules but with an offshore company. But if you don't, you're probably just going to have to avoid the U.S. entirely, right? That's always a tough conversation. And that's, I think, where I run into the most friction. For the most part, though, people want to do things that are legitimate businesses. There are legitimate ways to do those. And the question mostly has to do with sort of a a specific business activity to cost and regulatory complexity balancing game where you want to do everything at once. That's really expensive. So let's pick and choose the things you roll out or you you specifically do, and then maybe add more regulated and, and expensive activity down the road. That's interesting. And when you're weighing this with your clients, I'm wondering, like, it's obviously harder to be compliant in the US. And we've seen a lot of companies move abroad because of this. What's like the breakdown of the percent of companies or, or people you work with that say, hey, I'd rather take my time, spend more money and be able to attack the US market versus those that say, screw it, let's just go abroad and let's get this out as soon as we can? It's shifting. It used to be heavily skewed towards the latter in the sense that when the capital markets would abroad really would I think really heavily support I'll take a really simple example, right? Like sort of the traditional in air quotes ICO of tokens, which was long discussed. There are many problems within the United States potentially, uh, at least in many cases, although perhaps not all, but for many offshore jurisdictions, at least for the moment, uh seem acceptable. I think there was a period of time during which unregulated markets with respect to these kinds of products nevertheless supplied sufficient capital to really fund what was needed right but two things happened one is many of those companies tried to enter the US regardless because they just they wanted access to the market and they didn't fully appreciate the implication that they would be permanently locked out and so that's i think one one issue that is that has risen two i think that as other markets have started to catch up on the, the legal and regulatory frameworks from the with the United States. And they are cooperating with the US on those fronts. The investors in those markets are less eager to jump into something that is not compliant, right? Or or looks, you know, like it came out of late 2017. Conversely, US investors, I think, are starting to get more familiar and comfortable with this stuff and starting to feel, ironically, because it is getting regulated, that they can touch it more, right? So, and this is purely anecdotal. This is purely my experience. But I, there's been a trend towards companies coming to me and saying, we need to be able to go into the US both to raise capital and to to access customers, right? Or, or And we don't want to get locked out of, of major markets as their laws change either, right? Because the at the end of the day, other jurisdictions are looking at the stuff. They're just not quite as quick on the ball with it with, as the United States because they don't have kind of the, the flexible tests that we have reflected in, say, the Howey test. You know, so the, that 
is trending more towards we want access, right? And we're willing to finagle it or, or pay more or some combination thereof to get there. That also might reflect the type of clients that I'm seeing, though. And I, and I think that is increasingly common across the sector. I think that there is more outside industry knowledge coming in. So more projects that have not just blockchain expertise, for example, but pre-existing expertise on I don't know, you know, other the other industries from you know, I don't know, construction to data to finance to energy to everything in between that are are useful or that can make use of blockchain, right? And those types of people, people with outside business experience who were not necessarily coming out of the, I think, the the very ideological portions of the crypto space, which sometimes drove the market. For the last couple of years, those folks tend to look at a statement like "you will never access the U.S. market" and, and just they blanch. They just say that's a non-starter, right? They it's just sort of insane to them. And so there may be a correlate there, right? That the type of people coming into the market are the type of people who are less likely to want to exclude themselves from the U.S. or, or certain other major jurisdictions. But that's certainly what I've been seeing. So we talk a lot in crypto about lowering the barriers for developers to work in the space. And there's a lot of UX and UI questions that go in there and how do we prevent drop-off and how do we kind of spur development. We don't really talk about it too much on the regulatory and the legal side of things. Do you see any major things that the US can do that would severely lower the barriers for people getting involved in a compliant way? Or do you think it's still kind of a gray area? Oh, it's an interesting. I mean, I'm curious what you mean by getting involved or barriers to to entry, right? Because I, I hear that tossed around a lot, but I'm I'm not personally sure I I fully understand what they mean, right? Because most of the time with my clients, right, you come to me, they want to do something, and it, it's usually not a for an enormously expensive process at the start to have someone like me take a look at what you're doing and just say, yes, no, maybe at the bare minimum, right? Like you will or will not go to jail uh, offhand. Of course. This. But I don't know that that's what you mean. So could you give me an example of of the barriers or or the kinds of incentives, perhaps, conversely, that you're thinking of? No, I mean, it, it might just be a bad question, to be honest. I'm just wondering because a lot of the projects I talk to in the space and a lot of the people I talk to in the space just say that getting around U.S. regulations or complying, not getting around, but complying with them is just a very difficult and lengthy and expensive process. And I was just wondering if that was because of there's certain challenges that need to be addressed or we need new frameworks or if we need maybe set standards so that people could kind of approach this in a cookie cutter type fashion. It's an interesting question. Let's start starting backwards. Cookie cutter solutions are not really amenable to U.S. law frequently. There are more that there could be done, but U.S. law is very flexible intentionally, which is part of what has caused the friction here. It, in most other jurisdictions, to identify something as a security, you may have to say pass legislation that changes the definition of a security or adds certain types of tokens to the definition. The U.S. uses these sort of flexible court-derived definitions of a lot of things to, to deal with new and evolving problems. That said, I will say that I think that a lot of the cases that you're discussing here probably have not gone through that process that I described early on, right? In the sense that the design of not just say the token or the network, but the way that something was offered or distributed 
can act as a prohibitive barrier in terms of cost for entering the U.S. market when simply, say, raising the money otherwise or splitting off one of the functions or, or any one of another number of changes might have made it a lot more tenable, right? The problem becomes that once you've put these things out into the world and you've done the offering or you've distributed the tokens or brought the platform live or software service live, whatever it is, it's tough to go back, right? And and at that point, if you've designed or built something that doesn't work from a U.S. legal point of view or, or is, is complex from a legal point of view, and I will tell you, the sort of standard ICO model from 2017, 2018 is very complex from a U.S. point of view. And it's complex not just from a securities side, but from even to the extent that you're not issuing a security in the ICO model, you, you run into really potentially quite fraught problems on the anti-money laundering side in terms of compliance, right? So that basic model, which a lot of people used and a lot of people picked up, is fundamentally problematic, and it remains problematic to this day if you originally did it that way. And I think, you know, I, I may be reading between the lines here, but I think that a decent amount of the friction that people talk about when they say trying to comply with, with the US rules and stuff, it's frequently the product of having done something in the get, from the get-go that, that was never going to work from a US perspective, at least not with a, without spending a lot of money right on, on registration or licensure as a money transmitter. And they didn't budget that then, or they didn't sort of anticipate that. And now they're in a position where it's done. And in order to access the U.S. market or to get tokens to to U.S. users or developers, they they feel like they have to go, you know, spend a million bucks and then file a Reg A plus or something, you know, whatever it is. You know, that's a tough position to be in. And again, the best frequently thing that entrepreneurs can do, and I try to do for for my clients, frankly, is uh, keep them out of that position in the first place so they fully understand what they're getting into with whatever structure they're using. Yeah, that makes sense. It's helpful. And when you're thinking through working with your clients here and you know seeing what's out there in the wild, there's obviously some serious repercussions for not complying with these laws. What are some of these examples you're seeing? Because I feel like a lot of people in crypto... May, might not be aware of like the real world implications of messing around in the wrong way. Sure, I mean the one that stuck out to me recently, and and this is in part because I I deal with both the the securities laws end of things as well as as anti money laundering and, and money transmission regulation. And recently, so I, I work practice in Los Angeles, and I think down the street from me, twenty five year old kid from Westwood was sent to jail for looks like it's going to be the rest of his life for operating an unlicensed Bitcoin exchange. And there were all sorts of, this you know, popped up on Coindesk the other day. People probably saw it. There are all sorts of additional facts, right? It was, there was a sting operation. He, he had knowledge that some of it might've been drug proceeds, but you know, one laundering the proceeds of one drug transaction, it doesn't land you in jail for the rest of your life. The basis of that was not really the drug or the miss being a bad person. It's letting the money get out of the side of the government and operating a means to do so, right? That's that's what the government's trying to control there. And they're willing to punish quite severely to make sure that it doesn't happen. You know, and while the U.S. is probably more effective at this than many other jurisdictions, I, I won't, you know, I have to tell you, they're not the only government that cares about where the money is and how it flows. So while that particular instance, you know, 
it was really painful in the sense that he's a very young person. He was UCLA graduate, um, down the street from me. He was doing something I think more people in the sector probably know is wrong, right? Taking a commission to exchange cash or, or fiat for Bitcoin on behalf of others. But there, there's a very surprisingly wide range of activity that is potentially encompassed by the same rules. And, and again, these are broadly speaking the, the anti-terrorist financing and anti-money laundering rules that the United States and most other jurisdictions have in place, I should say. The U.S. takes particular interpretations of things, but th- this is a universal problem. And, and it's certainly one that other countries are attentive to. I, I should mention that I've certainly been seeing a fair number of subpoenas flying around, both domestically and, and foreign, right? That there's a lot of evidence that there's active prosecutions occurring abroad that, you know, they may still be in the information gathering stage, but, but, but people are quite serious about this stuff. So for entrepreneurs in the space, I think that the way this plays is that there are ways that you can get into trouble, which you don't realize are a big deal, right? I, I would argue that probably this kid in Westwood didn't think he was engaging in anything that particularly criminal, at least not for most of the time, right? The laundering the drug funds was probably not the smartest move, but nor was it really the crux of the crime there. And conversely, a lot of this stuff can be avoided if you think about it ahead of time or structure around it or, or you know, heaven forbid, get the license or, and register, register as a, a money services business. But this, you know, this applies to token issuers. This applies to people helping move their tokens around or exchange their tokens for other currencies. And, and, you know, there are lots of myths about this stuff in the community that I hear that frankly scare the daylights out of me. And, and then I'm surprised they're still floating around. Yeah, that's crazy. And it's terrible that he's going to jail forever, but, or the rest of his life. But it seems like, I guess, most people in crypto know that what he did probably isn't legal or compliant. But I guess in that same vein, but not to the same degree as what he did, it seems like crypto and blockchain is obviously bleeding edge tech. It moves very fast and entrepreneurs want to be able to attack this market, but they're also moving so fast and weighing so many ideas that it may be hard to not only get access to, but also afford and have the time to make sure everything is legit. And I'm not advocating to not do things legit. I'm just <laughs> stating kind of the fact here. What's your take there like on U.S. regulations for entrepreneurship in America? Because it seems like the U.S. wants to be the home for bleeding-edge tech, but it also seems like this might be able to inhibit it if entrepreneurs can't act in kind of a flexible kind of growth nature. Yeah, so I think there's a few things going on there. And I'm going to say, one, I think that there are certain aspects of U.S. the U.S. regulatory framework that, as an attorney, I have to advise as to what they are, not what I'd like them to be, right? But but ultimately, um, there are things that I think we could do that would be an improvement, right? Harmonizing the money transmission regulation framework so we don't have to do this state-by-state licensure thing would be really nice. And it's not clear to me that it, as a policy matter, adds a whole lot to, to do it that way, for example. On the other hand, I think that there is... An, well, and I, well, the other thing that I, I would like to see, right, would be more sort of effort from the regulators to give us examples of things they like. And and I know that's that, that, that can be very tough, and there's a little bit of fear on the part of the community to come forward with requests for no action, for example, or exemptive guidance, because you don't want to get the attention, right? But I do think that that, that some more prophylactic guidance that is not just negative would be helpful in encouraging the market from the regulators. That said, I do think a fair amount of the blame, you know, I 
it's horrible to blame my own profession, but I think there's a little bit of blame to lie with, with American attorneys here. Because I think that we are trained to just sort of execute on what our clients want to do, right? So if they bring us something and it costs $5 million to execute on, we just do that, particularly for financial services, where people just don't think that much about the cost frequently. Here, the laws are not as unclear frequently. They are subtle. They are nuanced. But they are not that necessarily unclear, both on the security side and on the money transmission side. And I'll tell you, that's my opinion. I'm sure there are attorneys who disagree, but I don't think they are. And to that effect, you know, it really ought to be possible for entrepreneurs to get advice on this stuff at an early stage. And, um, and I encourage them, right, to find attorneys who will work with them on trying to develop their products and, and figure out the right roadmap for them to come to the United States and, and other regulated jurisdictions. Because uh, there's, I think, a lot of products that I see that people feel like they might be regulated or they might be impossibly costly to do in the United States because they're just afraid. And and they're not. Frequently, they're they're perfectly acceptable. They're relatively cheap or, you know, tweak here and if I'm going to talk there and it's, and it's ready to go. Other times, there are just certain aspects to what's being designed or done that are problematic. And you can, if you can unbundle those things, it's, it's not so bad, but you, you have to attack it early, right. And recognize that it is, it is a nuanced process that, that dealing with the United States will never be a world of just hard and fast rules by very, very, very bright lines, just because that's unfortunately not how the law works here. But the law is clear, even if it is nuanced and with proper guidance and advice, they ought to be able to, to regu- you know, navigate these regulatory waters without getting themselves into trouble. I would like to see more effort from the U.S. regulators to, to provide sort of specific guidance and, and sandboxes. Uh, and I would also like to see my own profession try better to be a little more creative in how they, they help not necessarily structure these things, but help entrepreneurs understand how the rules apply and how they can be dealt with, right? Not only by paying more money, but also by perhaps changing the design or focusing on a different aspect of the product. Yeah, that's for sure. And the color is interesting, especially on your own profession, which I totally respect you being candid about. And taking this a step further, like we've been talking a lot about individuals coming to you and you know what the repercussions could be for an individual, but it's kind of a multifaceted question here. Like when I was doing equity research at Oppenheimer, like we never questioned whether you know, AT&T or Verizon were legally compliant. You know, that was never a line item in a model or right. a part no, of the research. No one, really, no one even section. looked or cared, right? You just assumed it happened. Yeah, exactly. I mean, do you think that when VCs are looking to invest in new projects and protocols, do you think that legal guidance or legal opinion should take precedent or be included more? Because particularly, I haven't seen that many flying around really until there's an issue like with Kick and Kin or, or others. It's an interesting question. I, generally speaking, my clients, when they ask me to review something, right, they're looking for two things, I think. One is sort of what I'll call technical legal perspective, right? Is are they going to get in trouble for investing in this? Are there going to be mechanical, other mechanical or, or legal restrictions that they care about economically in the documents, right? The, the other side of it is they're looking for an assessment of is there a legal or regulatory risk factor that has gone undescribed or undisclosed or which they don't fully appreciate, which could affect or impact the viability of the project, 
right? So no one wants to be part of a project that buy into a project that sees all of its money wasted on legal fees. And generally speaking, I think investors want to avoid that, right? But it, it is a little bit of a mental shift because you're so, I think most users, investors are so used to not even thinking about the regulatory side of things that even considering that it applies has been a little bit of a learning process. And the more clever VCs probably have taken this into account, but only to a certain degree, right? I think that, right, you know, the tail shouldn't wag the dog and law should not drive innovation entirely. On the other hand, getting into a project that will be functionally excluded from every major jurisdiction or because of the nature of the way it's put together, or for for that matter, that is um, going to end up burning all its money on legal fees two years down the road. It's probably not the best value investment, right? One other thing I'll, I'll say is that I think that one of the things that VCs can bring to the table with their projects, particularly if they're investing in a stage early enough in the project to really sort of help guide where it goes, is to make sure that the team gets proper counsel and proper advice and, and you know, the team around them that they really need. Because, you know, frankly, most most small founder teams don't have the resources, the time or, or the care to, to think about you know, legal and all this other stuff. And that's where something that's something where we're particularly in a space like this, right? Where there there are not established solutions and the legal and regulatory side of things really is an issue. Um, where where VCs can maybe pick something up from their attorneys, learn a bit, bring teams to the table and add a lot of value to their investments. Yeah, of course. And do you think that all of these restrictions will inhibit growth or maybe make some arbitrage plays. Like I, I know this is a specific example, but there's a project built on Ethereum called set protocol where you basically just build your own token baskets or, or invest in ones that already exist or, or allocate money to it. And they just rebalance. I'm wondering like if there's set protocol and then there's a competitor doing the same thing, but one might be legally compliant and one not, might not be. Do you think that these are real kind of pain points that, me or VC should be looking for when we're looking at projects? Or do you think that I might be thinking too much into this at this stage? So probably my answer should be that if I knew the answer, I'd be on the investor side, not the legal side, but uh, I make more money. (laughs) But that said, right, not every project needs to be regulated to death. And, and, And honestly, a lot of the best projects I see from my perspective aren't ones that have every license and registration under the sun. They're ones that were carefully designed to avoid needing that, you know, having that problem. That's a really Um, good point. And the the question is not, are they buried in legal, right? The question is, have they thought about it? Have they gotten decent advice? And and does their plan and their, their roadmap or their, their, you know, whether it's a business plan or roadmap for decentralization or whatever it happens to be, does it match the reality on the ground, right? Does it match the thinking and planning that has gone into it? To the extent that you've got that, I think as an investor, you're probably good. And some projects will be Coinbase, right? Listen, Coinbase stole a march on a lot of other exchanges in the US fundamentally by being the most compliant exchange that has, and there is real value in consumer markets uh, and retail, you know, both investor and retail consumer to the sense of security that comes from, particularly with things like holding your money, right? The sense of security that comes from, from a government stamp of approval. I know that that seems antithetical to a lot of people in crypto, but I, I deal with folks from all over the country and the world. And I, I tell you that there are still people who view that with, with a sense of comfort. That said, it doesn't necessarily mean that that's the only way to do it, right? And and again, I think some of the most compelling projects aren't ones that are highly regulated, centralized businesses, but are 
relatively unregulated projects or, or light touch regulated projects that have been thoughtfully constructed and are truly geared at, at decentralization, for example. But that's really valuable. That's also hard and, and requires a lot of thought and a, a lot of sort of willful sacrifices, perhaps on the economics or on the structure at the front end. So when, as an investor, you see a team that has had the wherewithal, perhaps not to let legal, you know, the legal tail wag the dog, but has has thoughtfully addressed it, gotten the right advice, and can answer your questions just rationally, right? Without just sort of off the cuff canned crypto responses to stuff. Oh, it has utility, you know, is my favorite example. Those are often the best founder teams because that that's not just that the, the legal is solved and therefore that's a source of value, although in some projects it can be, but it indicates a founder team that's that sees all of the many multifaceted details that go into a successful project in the space. And that personally as an investor, that's what I'd be looking for. Right. That that level of thoughtfulness and attentiveness to all of the pieces from the founder team. Yeah, the thoughtfulness and getting the right legal advice prior to launching something or, or in the process, and then also the idea that you bring up about designing around needing you know specific license or something makes a ton of sense. It definitely removes a lot of the overhead, but they don't get that until unless they're talking to somebody who's you know done right. All and so you know if you've got a team that comes in and says, you know, we've t- talked to lawyers, we've got this plan, we're gonna, I don't know, issue tokens only via sort of native interaction, and then there will be a secondary royalty stream. You can imagine all sorts of fun games. And and then stage two, assuming we hit market traction, then we'll do X and Y regulated activity. And then stage three, we conquer the world, right? I don't know. It's the typical startup story. But to the extent that there's some sort of idea or roadmap as to how they're going to address those problems, whether it's swallow the regulatory cost whole, designed around them, staged out some way, what, what I think investors ought to be looking for is just, have they thought about it? Have they addressed it thoughtfully? Have they gotten proper advice on it? Because if they have, that's about all you can do, right? I, you know, none of us have, none of us know the, the mind of the Supreme Court, nor the SEC, nor FinCEN. Ultimately, if you get good legal advice and incorporate it into your thinking and design, uh, it's probably a sign of a good team. Yeah, for sure. And switching gears a little bit, I know this is a broad question and it probably depends on what the issue at hand would be, but a lot of our projects in space are becoming very decentralized. You know, take Augur, for example, or take like a DAO. Like DAOs are gaining a lot of momentum in 2019. And Ryan Zur, I just had him on. He's talking about reviving the old DAO, obviously under a new structure with a lot of new details, but it seems like at the end of the day, if one of these DAOs or one of these decentralized projects does something stupid, it's kind of hard to police it. But at the end of the day, there's always pain points that the government or a regulator could push on. Do you think that this might be an issue regulation-wise, or do you think it might be an issue on how to actually enforce things for like a DAO? Yes. <laughs> I think this is my answer to all of that. The DAOs and, and truly decentralized sort of organizations are, are interesting problems. I'm going to start by saying that I think the regulatory bar for decentralization is high. And many, many projects, in fact, most projects that I see that claim to be heavily decentralized at this stage are not, right? Are less decentralized than they appear at first glance. And whether that has to do with token holding, and I'll, I'll give you an easy example, is circulating token supply and relative token distribution, right? If 
insiders still hold a, a substantial chunk or, or even majority of the uh, of the token supply of a project. It's not decentralized, right? Almost by definition, and and so. That I think is going to lead a lot of projects that if they get into trouble, I don't, you know, and a lot of times no one cares until something bad happens, right? But if they get into trouble or they, they screw something up, then you're going to have some pretty painful scenes where probably regulators or, or law enforcement agencies will attempt to identify effectively controlling individuals, right? For these organizations and then treat them as partnerships or something. Uh, you know, I can't. It's probably more than I can prognosticate on, but I would expect that that something along that that lines would happen. The flip side is right. So, what do you do with like a truly decentralized or, or system, right? A true DEX or or, uh, or something like that. Those are hard. Uh, those I think don't make law enforcement officials very uncomfortable, right? Because the the basic framework by which we deal with Money laundering, terrorist financing, tax evasion, and, and again, when I say we, I mean pretty much every government on earth, is to piece together financial sort of data from various nodal points in the financial world, right? And that lets them put together a picture of whether or not someone committed a crime or had money or what have you. The problem is that anywhere where you've got true decentralization in the sense that it allows for either fraud to be committed or or money to be laundered in a truly anonymous way, right? It's not clear to me how current law necessarily neatly applies or covers that kind of activity, depending on the facts. But it's also not clear to me how law enforcement or regulatory agencies anywhere are going to let that persist, right? That they're going to feel the need to control it. And I think that when I like to think of governments sort of like they're like organisms, they're like anything else, um, when they get frustrated or when they're, they're stimmied or they're angry, they, they lash out, right? And they get more aggressive. And I, I think that there's a real danger. And then this speaks to the decentralization thing with DAOs and, and sort of whether or not they're trying to evade regulation or at least, or engage with it or, or at least try to resolve it. It speaks to, the broader sort of question of going onshore versus offshore with the U.S. and other jurisdictions, the more the sector is perceived to try to run from or hide from law enforcement and regulators, unfortunately, and again, this isn't a value judgment, just my observation, I think the, the harder they're going to try to come down on individuals from a liability perspective. And while I think that the U.S. will probably the U.S. and China will sort of lead the way with that in turn because they have the most powerful and effective tools uh, legally. I, I don't think they're going to be alone, right? I, you know, money laundering is a massive issue in the EU, and and for any state that has the power and, and the systemic structures to to deal with it, they're going to be terrified of the idea that people can fundamentally avoid their surveillance of money. And, and you know, that sounds very sinister, and to a certain degree it is, but it's also just the truth. And I think it's worth remembering that as much as we hate taxes and we think governments are evil and there are evil governments and, and governments that do evil things, a lot of this stuff is good too, right? I mean, I don't, I at least personally don't want to be helping finance death camps in North Korea based on laundering money that they stole from other consumers via Bitcoin exchanges, right? That, that too gets wrapped up in these rules and, and how, they, how we deal with it. Yeah. I, you know, one, as a last thought on that, many of these decentralized systems nevertheless hold the capacity to solve a lot of these problems that I'm talking about much more efficiently than the incredibly fragmented 
and privatized system of sort of data collection and management we have now, right? And I do hope that there will become a moment where the crypto community and regulators on both sides sort of come together and have a really productive discussion about recognizing the policy concerns of the laws and the regulators and trying to deal with those, but getting flexibility from those same regulators to try to construct new solutions for them, right? And and find ways of allowing sort of the, the blockchain, of letting the blockchain world address those policy concerns without totally sacrificing its its own flexibility and, and philosophical nuance, frankly. I, it'll be a tough one, but I, I'm hopeful that we can get there. Yeah, that's huge. And definitely agree that it's fragmented. And hopefully that's what the entrepreneurs in the space are are trying to address. And Alex, one last broader question for you. It's kind of off the path here, but I'd like to get your take. And I know you spend a lot of time in the US, but we see a lot happening in China, Asia, Hong Kong, take your bag, the whole region on what a restrictive government means in the context of crypto. If you're thinking ahead 5, 10, 20 years do you think that crypto and blockchain, Web3, DeFi, take your pick, do you think that this is something that can actually not overthrow a, a restrictive government or, or maybe, but do you think this is something that can give people real freedom and real power in those restrictive countries? I think that these things are tools like anything else. And like all powerful tools, they can be used for good or ill. And I think that the the basic tools of blockchain and decentralized finance could be an enormously liberating thing for the people of the world, especially if they are rooted in things like the U.S. and the EU's respective concepts of fundamental privacy and data rights and so forth, right, and individual rights. I think that they are incredibly scary if they are used in in certain other ways and I'll, I'll give you an example you know certain uh, bank you know central bank currency systems or the implementation of this stuff with, with tracking systems you could end up with an incredibly comprehensive data collection and surveillance system if this stuff was built in compliance with some jurisdictions right and so I encourage to the extent that that everyone's picking jurisdictions here right? I would encourage you to go read Coin Center's discussion about privacy in the United States and its and the fundamental friendly and constitutional friendliness to cryptocurrencies. And keep in mind that to the extent that this whole sector is trying to fight for people's individual rights to transact and, and conduct their business without being oppressed by a government, sometimes you do have to make compromise. And it's possible that compromising with, say, the US government might give you better legs in propagating those ideals elsewhere. Just a thought. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Super interesting to hear the color. And Alex would be remiss if we did not point our listeners to the best way that they can reach you and the best type of client who could reach out to you. Because I'm sure there's people listening here that they might not be sure. But um, if you give any color on the best type of clients for you and where they can reach you, sure. That would be really so helpful. if you want to get a hold of me, you can find us at l l o y l a w. So loylaw.com, Lindgren, Lindgren, Omen, you. You can also find me on Twitter at Alex underscore L-L-O-Y law. So Twitter slash Alex underscore L-L-O-Y law. I post infrequently, but you can find my articles on you know crypto hedge funds and things like that there, as well as my occasional snarky comments about uh, crypto regulators and then everything in between. 
Yeah, of course. So it's great that people have a spot to reach you easily. And Alex, thanks so much for your time, the color. Uh, I hope your listeners enjoy it. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to the episode. If you can go to iTunes and hit subscribe to the Chain Reaction Podcast, it'll go a long way in helping us reach new listeners and help support the show. Thanks again.